Welcome to another episode of Vet Nerds, a podcast made by a vet nurse student for vet nurse students, especially the nerdy ones who love practice clinical reasoning with cases. I'm your host Ariel Lee, a third-year vet student from UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine and a huge nerd. Join me in a case recap on a painful big puppy, followed by an expert interview on an interesting disease that you shouldn't miss at your practice. Whether you are studying for exams, seeking opportunities to hone your clinical skills, or simply thirsty for some weird cases, you will find something of interest in the next twenty minutes. Let's dive into the case now. An eight-month-old female Spade Great Pyrenees dog presented to ER for lethargy and abdominal pain. Owner noticed that she was not as alert the night before the visit. And had soft serve consistency diarrhea. She took only a few bites of canned food in the morning and was slower to stand up and sit down. Owner felt that she was uncomfortable around her belly. Pertinent past medical history included hospitalization due to parvoenteritis before she was adopted. She was healthy and active since adoption. There was no change of diet or known ingestion of foreign body or toxin. On physical examination, she was quiet but alert and responsive. She was mildly dehydrated, tachycardic at 150 beats per minute, and had a mildly elevated temperature of 103.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Her heart and lungs sounded clear, and the abdomen was tense. No masses were organomegaly appreciated, and her bowel loops were smooth. She was ambulatory with no gait abnormalities and no overt joint or lung bone pain. Peripheral lymph nodes were small and soft. Soft formed stool was appreciated on rectal exam. A CBC revealed a moderate leukocytosis characterized by a moderate neutrophilia with bands and slight toxicity, and moderate monocytosis. Chemistry panel was unremarkable. For the X was performed, and she was negative for heartworm, anaplasmosis, ehrlichiosis, and Lyme disease. Abdominal imaging, include radiograph and ultrasound, were unremarkable. No parasites were observed in fecal flotation. The puppy was hospitalized overnight on intravenous fluids, GI supportive care, and empirical antibiotics. Her fever resolved on the next day, and she was eating with good appetite. Given her acute presentation and drastic improvement overnight, top considerations for her diarrhea and fever included dietary indiscretion and secondary gastroenteritis (GI parasitism) and/or possible GI bacterial translocation. She was discharged on clavamox, fenbenazole, and a bland diet. Two days later, the puppy returned to the ER. Owner reported that she was never a hundred percent her active self since last visit. She cried when she lay down the night before and would yelp when she turned her neck around. She was hesitant to lie down or get up and was carrying her head low when she walked. Physical examination was similar to last visit. Her mild fever returned at one o three degrees Fahrenheit. There was still no gait abnormalities appreciated. A full neurologic examination was performed, and the only abnormality was pain on flexion and dorsal elevation of the neck. Repeated CBC and chemistry were consistent with prior visit. Thoracic and vertebral column radiograph were unremarkable. 
The differentials for cervical pain include inflammatory CNS disease such as steroid-responsive meningitis arthritis or SRMA, discosmondylitis, and bacterial or fungal meningitis. Other non-neurologic causes include musculoskeletal injury, degenerative joint disease, and anatomical malformations. Her signalment of being a large breed young puppy prioritizes SRMA. Spinal taps were performed, and cisternal and lumbar CSF samples were submitted for cytology and culture. Joint taps were performed on both carpal and stifle joints for analysis too. CSF from cisternal tap revealed moderately elevated nucleated cells of 113 per microliter. There were predominantly non-degenerate neutrophils with increased foamy macrophages. The lumbar CSF showed no significant cytologic abnormalities. The difference in cell population between cisternal and lumbar CSF suggested localized inflammation. Joint fluid revealed mild mononuclear inflammation. Surprisingly, her CSF grew one colony of Micrococcus species in the culture. This was not a common pathogen for meningitis and was most likely a contamination of sample, but recheck culture was indicated to ensure that this was not a true infection. The puppy was discharged with 0.5 mg per kilogram prednisone PO twice a day to treat SRMA, and she came back in one week for a recheck and repeat CSF. She was doing great despite persistent neck pain. Her pleocytosis were markedly improved on recheck. It was only three nucleated cells per microliter, with predominant large mononuclear cells, likely the residue of previous inflammation. Her CSF did not culture any organism this time. The response to treatment confirmed the diagnosis of SRMA. Her prednisone dose was continued with the plan to gradually tapering over the few months, bearing any recurrence. Steroid-responsive meningitis arteritis, or SRMA, is a disease of unknown cause that is believed to be immune-mediated in origin, where the inflammatory process targets the leptomeninges and associated blood vessels of young dogs. It is most common in young adult, medium to large breed dogs. To date, this disorder has not been reported in cats. Common clinical signs include cervical pain, dull mentation, lethargy, stiff gait, and usually with no neurologic deficits. Definitive diagnosis for this case is made based on histopathology. However, given the invasive nature of sample collection for that diagnosis, a neutrophilic pleocytosis that is non-degenerative and elevated protein on CSF is sufficient to suggest SRMA. Typically, it is treated empirically with steroids, and patients are monitored for improvement of clinical signs. Prognosis for dogs with SRMA is excellent, and most, if not all, dogs will respond to treatment. A small percentage of dogs may relapse and require additional doses of steroids, but this is uncommon. Bacterial meningitis is another possible differential for neutrophilic pleocytosis in the CSF and needs to be ruled out before treating the patients with immunosuppressive doses of steroids. This case highlights the diagnostic challenge of some SRMA cases.
although many cases warrant a relatively straightforward diagnosis with neck pain and signalment. Sometimes the pain can be difficult to locate. A portion of SRMA patients suffer from wax and waning episodes of pain and fever, frequenting veterinary clinics with multiple rounds of diagnostics and/or antibiotic treatment before the diagnosis is reached and treatment initiated. Let's hear what the expert has to say about this interesting disease. Today's expert guest is Dr. Chai Fei Li. She is a professor in neurology and neurosurgery department of UC Davis Veterinary School. Apart from being an incredible neurosurgeon, she is also interested in a variety of medical neurologic disorders, including the topic today. In your experience, how many of these dogs present acutely as just extreme pain, um, fever, with or without other symptoms, and what? proportion of these dogs present as a wax and waning presentation where they go through different doctors and multiple rounds of workup? That is a very good question. I think my perception is a little bit skewed, mm -hmm. um, mostly because we are a treasury referral service, right? So yeah. most of the time, like a good portion of the easy cases, like the more typical cases probably are dealt with kind of primary care practitioner. And then a subset of those um, get taken care of by other neurologists in the area. And then we see the ones that either nobody else can fit them in or that they've already have challenge and they need to come. So my clinical perception is a little bit skewed. Um, I do think most of them do come do start somewhere um, in terms of having an acute pain that the the owner picked up that most of the time, the classic, classic ones are the ones that are presented with severe cervical pain, severe neck pain. Um, but we do see other ones that are at other area of the spine as well that are also painful. And that will be by far the most common one. I think as a as a primary care doctor, most as an owner, most of the time, you know, your first resort will be to go to your regular vet. Then it kind of depends on how the regular vet um, kind of approach it. Do they have a high clinical suspicion? This is a neurologic issue versus, you know, do we have other ones that are not as clear cut, you know, where the pain comes from, where the discomfort is coming from. Some of them are pretty... Um, difficult to decide. Some of them, the history are like just reluctant to jump around, reluctant to jump up to the couch. So I do think that most of them do come out pretty severely, um, acutely, but there's definitely a subset that are a little bit difficult to recognize. But a lot of it will be based on whether the owner is used to recognizing these as well, and as well as the their regular vet. Um, does this presentation of a pretty specific pain versus either referred pain or chronic wax and waning pain um, kind of decides how successfully they respond to treatment or they just pretty uniformly respond to steroids once we put them on it? So pain is an extremely difficult thing to study in veterinary medicine. I mean, it's definitely difficult to study in human medicine as well. And we can communicate and tell people how painful we are. And in dogs and cats, well, especially in these cases, so like in dogs, that we 
don't really know. Some dogs are, you know, really focal, even with a small amount of pain. And some dogs are very stoic and they don't show that they're painful or uncomfortable until they are putting up with a lot. Um, so study, studying pain is very difficult. So that in, in terms of the pain aspect is a little bit difficult to quantify. But there are papers saying that if their inflammation is severe, meaning that their spinal tap, um, their CSF tap um, nucleated cell counts are high, when they're severely elevated, which we correlate with more severe form of the disease process, they tend to have a higher um, likelihood of recurrence and they need to be a little bit um, uh, they do better with aggressive, you know, um, uh, steroid treatment. Um, so, so there's definitely potentially some sort of relationship with the pain. Um, but it's hard, you know, it's your dog a wuss versus is your dog, like, you know, realistically convey how painful things are. Yeah. Um, what about the concurrence with IMPA? Do mm -hmm. we have um, do we always tap the joints um, to see if there's some inflammation there? Or I've also seen um, people skip it because like we're going to treat them with steroids anyway. Why do I want to tap the joint? That's a very, <laughs> another very good question. I, um, we do know that historically there are published paper basically reporting that um, there are around, you know, a quarter of these dogs have concurrent IMPA. Um, I think whether you tap the joint or not, like you raised a very good question, we're going to treat them the same way. Is it important to know whether they actually have also joint issue or not, joint pains versus not? I think in the sense of whether that changes your treatment or not, maybe not. However, however, it does give you more information in terms of, hey, um, when I'm examining this dog, um, can I correlate some of these together? Um, and then there's the academic interest. You know, if we never look, we're never gonna learn more about the disease process. Um, and then the other thing is, we I'm, I'm assuming that we're probably gonna get to it in terms of the challenges of treatment and definitive diagnosis and things like that. Having, being able to have one more piece of information to try to solve the puzzle also help. Because what if you have septic arthritis um, in your joint taps and you thought you had IMPA, that's gonna change what you're gonna do. If, if, if the dog comes in writing the word SRMA on their neck and, you know, the, that's what you see and it's, it's that easy and we just treat according to what we think, um, then, then life is much easier. But then, you know, practicing medicine is not as fun. Uh, let's circle back to the diagnostic challenges that you mentioned before. Mm -hmm. um, in your experience, what is the most challenging um, part of like diagnosing this disease and like how can veterinarians prepare themselves more for these type of diseases? Mm -hmm. The easy ones are the ones that read the textbook. Mm -hmm. The ones that read the textbook, typical breed, typical signal men with their age, classic cervical pain, um, really, really obvious, clear cut, 
severe um, increase in cell number pleocytosis um, in their CSF. Those are the easy ones where you have clear sign that is probably SRMA. Mm -hmm. The ones that are a little bit more difficult are if you did an MRI, you're seeing some myo lesion that you cannot say for sure whether it is a SRMA thing versus um, other things. Um, and the cell counts, if they're a little bit more borderline, less severe, those are the ones that you are, it's a little bit more complicated in terms of figuring out, you know, what we're truly dealing with. The challenge is that with SRMA being an inflammatory, non-infectious disease process, the treatment is completely opposite to infectious process. And unfortunately, some of the diagnostic results mimic each other, um, mm -hmm. which makes it really challenging because if you pick the wrong side, um, there's the potential that things can get really bad very quickly. Uh, we mentioned earlier that a lot of the diagnostic workup um, is done by the primary veterinarian because that's what they usually go to see first. Um, but it sounds like it's a more of a referral um, veterinarian disease because, you know, regular veterinarian doesn't have MR MRI and can they do spinal tap? I don't see that very often. So what kind of a workup can a primary veterinarian do? Um, to QEQ out this disease to to reach a diagnosis earlier. I think the biggest thing is to recognize your signalman and history and actually tease out what the history is, and then also a very good exam, um, being able to tell is this dog painful because pain is definitely a big component of this disease process. And if you're able to tease that out, knowing that the pain is along the vertebral column and, and, and around the neck area, you know, even if it's even more classic, then it makes your job and your clinical suspicion um, much higher for SRMA. The big thing will be to in terms of actual diagnostic test after that will be to root out any systemic causes or infectious causes that you can check out systemically. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. And then after that, I don't know any primary care vet that actually does spinal tap. Um, not that I'm aware of. I think some old school um, might do more because I think um, back in the days, veterinary does everything before specialty medicine is more popular. Um, it, it is a disease that is mostly diagnosed through spinal taps. Things, I think spinal tap is more important than the MRI, but the MRI helps us root out infectious causes. Right. Um, do you have anything to add to the discussion? Um, I want to say that pain and waxing and waning fever, waxing and waning pain, especially spinal pain and especially cervical pain are the hallmark of this disease process. Um, so with those, and if the signalman falls within um, what we typically see in these dogs, which is young adults or juvenile dogs, um, then your clinical suspicion should be high, especially if they're the typical breeds. 
This wraps up another episode of Vet Nurse. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. If you like this episode, or if you have any questions or comments, please leave a message. See you next time.